happy thing. Hope everybody's well rested today. Let me just say that right up front. Um, actually, I have a sense of humor about that. I hope you do too. I've had some funny conversations and some some real meaningful conversations about that since last week, and um, everything from man, I sure am glad my son heard that, to um, man, I have a tough schedule. I work Saturday nights all night, but I want to be here. And um, that it was helpful for me to hear the gamut of responses, some affirming, and none of them were were negative. But I think everybody appreciates that what we're doing here is this is this isn't a talk. It's not something that we want to snooze through. Sometimes you're just tired, and um, I get that. So, but I want you to really work at engaging from week to week because I think this, uh, and I think we all agree, it really matters. Um, we have a nice resource online where it is recorded, where you can go back and listen to it. And if you've had a sleepy Sunday, um, then you can go back and engage it and um, connect to it. So I'm thankful for that resource. Years ago, um, I went through sort of a crisis of profession, uh, trying to figure out what I was supposed to do with my life. I, I was in the Marine Corps for five years. I loved being a Marine. Um, I got to the rank of captain before I left active duty, and um, I found myself facing a lot of desk time and a lot of um, classroom time that I, wasn't exciting to me. I, I enjoyed being with the Marines, doing what Marines do and didn't like the notion of, of being in classroom. And that's about the time that Christy and I were getting married, so it, it made it easy to make a transition out of the Marine Corps. I enjoyed my time there, but I knew that wasn't a long-term plan for me. I went to graduate school right after that and got a graduate degree and the same degree that I had my undergrad in and thought that I wanted to have a profession along those lines. And the door sort of closed there where I had the sense that, no, that's not it. So I, I turned the direction of what my dad did as a veterinarian and, and took some classes back at A&M for vet school, and all the while I was teaching, son, uh, teaching Bible study classes for young married couples and really enjoying that, but really just pressing hard and pressing into these professions that I thought that, that God had for me. And I, sat, uh, I took um, organic chemistry, I survived organic chemistry, things like that at, at, at Texas A&M, and uh, I'm sitting in physiology class, and about halfway through the semester, and I said, this ain't it. I knew this ain't it, and it wasn't about physiology, it was just that particular lecture in that particular morning where I realized I know what my dad did and I know that's not what God wants me to do and it was through that season that I reached for a book that um, my pastor from South Carolina gave me years ago it's called Devotional Classics by uh, Richard Foster edited by Richard Foster it's actually by a handful of people uh, it's little excerpts from different writings from C.S. Lewis to Jonathan Edwards to a guy that I'm going to share with you momentarily, a guy named John of the Cross. I reached for this book in a, in a season that I didn't know I needed it. Um, but I was sort of at this place where, God, what do you have planned for me and Christy and our family? What, I feel like I'm hitting these dead ends and these uh, roadblocks. and um, Not because doors were closed so much as I just knew that wasn't it. And it was in studying um, a particular writing from a guy named John of the Cross that uh, the Lord actually showed me, I believe, not only uh, what he does with the dark valley and the dark season, uh, but what uh, he had planned for us as a family. And uh, John of the Cross, this, this little writing in here, it's, from, it's an excerpt from a book that he, or a devotional that he wrote called The Dark Night of the Soul. John of the Cross wrote this around the end of 1500-something A.D., he was uh, imprisoned at this time as, that he wrote this. And he's writing about what God does when he removes the trappings of devotional life 
so that we can come to know the God of the devotional life more than the trappings, more than the feelings, more than the things that we often get really drawn to in our journey of faith. That um, uh, It sort of made sense of those prayers where you feel like you're talking to the ceiling. And when you read your Bible and you feel like you're just, just words, uh, he helped make sense of that for me. And um, it became a dear um, little devotional. I've given this book to a number of people over the years just because it was something that was special to me. Uh, I don't have my original copy that I marked up, but this is uh, um, John of the Cross is not a direct transfer to where we're going today, the dark night of the soul, but there's a lot of transfer. It's a familiar place. Um, As I was studying this chapter that we're going into today, this dark night was familiar in this valley. Um, This place where you're wondering where God is was familiar. So... um, I encourage you, maybe, if you're looking for a devotional uh, that you might be studying alongside our Sundays together and our life group times together, that maybe grab a devotional classics. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And you can get to know John of the Cross as I have, a good, good friend. We're in Job chapter 3 today. And in some ways, we are in the dark night here in Job chapter 3. Job has lost everything by this point. He's lost his, his family, all but his wife. Uh, seven children, or seven sons, three daughters. He's lost basically his property, his identity as a rancher. I mean, as king, he's really sort of a micro-king in Edom. Edom, he's lost all that. He's basically a, a pauper at this point. And on top of that, he's even lost his health. He's sitting covered with boils. Uh, we, we left off last week that he's just sort of sitting in, in, in ashes, uh, as almost like sitting on an altar, having been sacrificed. And... Um, Uh, We pick up here in chapter 3. We're going to meet his three friends Sunday after next. Uh, The end of chapter 2 introduces us to his three friends, and we'll pick pick them up Sunday after next. But this Sunday, we're just going to spend our time in chapter 3 in a dark place. And we'll try and make sense of why we need to go there and why Job went there. After this, this is after seven days of silence sitting in ashes. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why didn't I die at birth? come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept and then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, 
and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. After seven days of silence with his supposed friends, and I use air quotes when I talk about these guys, his supposed friends surrounding him, sitting with him silent for those seven days, he finally speaks. And these are the words that he shares, and they're more of a poem, they're more of a song, more really of a part curse, part lament. Um, He doesn't address anyone specific in this chapter. He's not speaking to his friends that are there with him so much. He's not speaking even necessarily to God. There is sort of a Godward appeal in verse 4. He's not speaking to his wife. He's just speaking. He's just speaking from a really, really dark place. He's singing, really, a very sad song that's part curse and part lament. The curse is really in verses 1 through 10 where he gets real specific about cursing the day of his birth. He doesn't curse his parents. He doesn't curse God or all bets would be off and Satan would have won, right? He curses the day of his birth. In verse 3, he says, let the day perish. In verse 4, he says, let that day, that day of my birth, be darkness. In verse 5, he says, let the blackness of that day terrify it. And let thick darkness seize it, in verse 6. He also says in verse 6, Let the day of my birth not even be on the calendar. And as if his own curses are not enough, in verse 8, he calls on some professional curses to join her, to join him. Some, some pros. He's doing some recruiting here. Say, I need some help here. I need those who do cursing to join in with me to rouse Leviathan. Later on in the book of Job, God speaks to Job about Leviathan. It says, who controls Leviathan? Certainly you don't. I do. The notion here is that these cursors are so gifted at what they do, they can actually roust a beast to join in the cursing of Job's particular day, the day of his birth. In verse 9, he wishes the night before his birth had never given way to dawn. If that day hadn't taken place, his birth wouldn't have taken place. Verses 11 through 26, he shifts from cursing the day to almost a resignation resignation that, okay, the day happened. I can't do anything about the day, but let me at least lament that day. So he laments. He says, why didn't I die? Why did they nurse me after all? Why did they tend to me? Why did they raise me? Why would light and life be given to someone who'd experience such profound loss? He says, I have size to eat instead of my bread. And instead of water, I'm drinking groanings. And this lament ends with, I have no rest. Trouble, present tense, keeps on coming. Man, it's really a sad chapter. I mean, I find myself like getting emotional because just imagining what this guy's feeling. It's not a personal angst as I'm reading this. I'm like, ah, oh, this guy's really, really hurting. 
trying to make sense of what's going on here, it's interesting how much the creation week has spoken into Job's context and how through creation week, this last week especially, we were able to make sense of what's going on in Job. Creation week also connects to what's going on here in chapter 3. It's obscure, but I want you to see this. He curses and laments in sort of an uncreation week, more of a decreation week. As God at the beginning of creation week said, let there be light. Job at the end of the seven days of silence says, let there be darkness. Man, it's the anti-creation. Instead of darkness, he, in addition to darkness, he includes gloom. He includes deep darkness, clouds. The synonyms in this chapter are heartbreaking. Blackness, night. Instead of let there be light, let there be darkness. Instead of stars and light in the heavens, marking off the days and months and years, he asked that the stars would be darkened. No bright soldiers marking off the days and months and years in this week. Decreation. Rather than experiencing and walking in dominion over the beasts, including Leviathan, rouse him instead to participate in curses about the day of my birth. It's the anti-creation week, and it ends with the anti-Sabbath I have no rest. I have no rest. I am not at ease. Having lost everything after having had everything, which must be even more heartbreaking, there's a strong sense here that Job has been decreated. Job has been disintegrated. He has been uncreated by the same God that said, let there be light. By the same God that was so imminent and so present and so overwhelmingly involved in Job's life up to this point in this almost garden-like existence in Edom. Where did God go? Even the seven days of silence is in contrast with creation week that's full of life-giving words, life-giving speaking here there's seven days of silence and then this uncreation song, uncreation story about Job's decreation. It's a sad song of darkness and lament. He sits having lost it all, singing this sad song in dust and ashes. I um, wonder if you know what decreation feels like. I don't have to wonder real hard because I know y'all. I know some of the stuff that you have to go through. I know this uncreation week is strangely familiar when your world feels like it's coming unraveled. Dominion is lost. Things that you once were able to walk in and had some semblance of control are gone. Lost. Light and life seem obscure. Anybody? Anybody relate to those seasons? The beautiful order of creation seems to come unraveled and you feel shrouded in deep darkness and confusion and gloom and clouds and blackness. Anybody? Man, I know the dark night of the soul. This little taste I had some. 18, 20 years ago, however many years ago it was, as I studied that 
Dark Night of the Soul devotional from John of the Cross is a, just a wee taste of something that I've gone through at period, different times. Those that know me, that are close to me, that work with me, or are married to me, or are um, related to me in some sense, know I'm acquainted. With this uncreation. I shared just a few weeks ago that, man, I really have been happy as a man, as a human being, as a worshiper in this last season. Like the last year or so, I found a joy that I hadn't had in years. Probably a two to three years period in my life where I can, I mean, it's right here, this season of darkness. These words that he used are, in fact, familiar to me. I didn't lose things like he did, which made it even more troubling but a season of two to three years long of darkness, gloom, and clouds, and blackness, and night. I realize that even as I share that with you right now, there's a sense of shame. I don't know why. Because I know we all feel it. Why are we ashamed of this? I mean, we have to be asking the question as we're seeing this in Job. As maybe you're hearing it from me. Maybe you're thinking some of you who might can identify with those seasons of darkness. Is this okay? Is this a season of faithlessness in Job? What are we to do with this in Job? What are we to do with this with ourselves? What are we to do with this with this guy we're here and talk today? Is this okay? It's got to be a question we're wrestling with this morning. I thought maybe a way to wrestle with that question is what do we usually do with this? What do we usually do with this when we're seeing it in someone else? We have lots of ways that we deal with it. When I'm seeing it in someone else or when I've been going through seasons like this, some things that I've heard are some things that I've said to others. Things like keep a stiff upper lip. Right? Put on a happy face. I don't know that I've ever said that, but come away unscathed. I can't imagine that I could. We could say some things like remain positive. Man, think about all the things you have to be really positive about. Pull yourself together, man. Have you ever said that or heard that? How about this one? Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See, you know the song. Right? We all know the song. Make you want to slap somebody when they tell you that. Man, we know we've either said it or we've heard it. We've heard things like this. Some have it worse than you. Man, when you're in a place like that, that doesn't really help. It doesn't really help because you're confused about why you're down there anyway. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, whatever that means. Think about some of the other things we say. Stop focusing on yourself and think about someone else for a change. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Happiness is a choice. Cheer up, lighten up, get a grip. You need a hobby. Have you tried vitamins? Get some kombucha. That'll get it done. Make you regular all at the same time. That might be part of the problem. Get some kombucha. 
other things. There's an oil for that. There's a pill for that. There's a diet for that. All the things that we throw at people that are in the dark night or all the things that we've heard when we're in the dark, dark night, all of these things have some version, some little slight measure, some more so than others, of merit. But what all of these things imply is that it's not okay to be in that place of profound sadness and darkness and gloom. You're broken if you're there. We even use that term, I'm broken. Let's get you some help. Let's get you out of that spot because there's something wrong with where you are. If you've been reading ahead in Job, you know how his friends responded to Job's lament. It unleashed a 39 chapter. All those chapters aren't filled with the friends' words, but it unleashed a beating from his supposed friends who had been silent up to that point. Job's friends didn't approve of the lament. Man, I wonder if we do or can approve of lament. Maybe we want to jolly people out of dark patches so they don't drag us down. We are talking about it in staff meeting this week, and, Stephen, and Tiffany brought that up. I was like, great point. Because it is contagious, isn't it? And we don't want to catch it. <laughs> Can I keep you just far enough away to, from me where I don't catch whatever you've got? Because it's so dark and so gloomy, and we are a little bit selfish, I'm afraid. So we have to ask the question. I think we have to deal with the question right here in Job chapter 3. Is this okay? If we all maybe experience it in different degrees, some more so than others, but if we can wrangle with this chapter and say, is this okay? Is what's going on here in Job chapter 3 okay? My commentaries, I have a number of commentaries that I read. I have some books that I read that are from old preachers many, many, many years ago. Almost without fail. They treat this as a blip on the radar for Job. This is where Job went off the reservation. That's how they handle it. This couldn't be a Christian response. One even likened it to the groanings and, or to the grumblings of the Israelites in Numbers chapter 11. Man, I want to stand on broad shoulders, but I also want to handle a passage in the scope of the book. And the book, here's what God says about Job. We have to look at chapter 3 through what God says about Job. Here's what God says. I mean, I'm talking the premium commentator on Job's movement. Here's what God says in chapter 1, verse 22. He says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In chapter 2, it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Okay, that's the beginning of the story. That's pre-chapter 3. But here's what he says at the end of the book. Here's what God says. The Lord said to Eliphaz in chapter 42, to Eliphaz the Temanite, he's sort of the representative of the friends. He says, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. The next verse, you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Whatever you think of Job's words, 
Whatever you think of someone who might go through the dark night or someone that might deal with seasons of darkness and gloom. Even if the secret stoic in you hates lament and hates what Job is doing here, you've got to submit and subject your views of what you think is going on here to what God says is going on here. And he says that Job did not sin with his lips. Man, that's the lens through which we view chapter 3. We have no room to interpret his movement any other way than that lament is okay and can, in fact, be faithful lament. Man, that's what's going on here in chapter 3 in Job. You know, what's interesting is the saints have lamented for thousands of years. It's not a real popular genre for us. I did a little search on... um, Google, I brought my phone in here. I don't bring my phone on purpose in fear it would ring or something like that. But I brought my phone in here because I did a little Google search this morning. I was curious about lamentation. What's a current day lamentation? And I don't really find contemporary versions of lamentation. I did find an article on Together for the Gospel website about a gal named Sandra McCracken that put out an album. Has anybody ever heard of Sandra McCracken? I had never heard of her. I never heard of somebody. Mary Jane's heard of her, okay? Sandra McCracken put out an album. Um, I don't know if you call it an album. What do you call them nowadays? Uh, some songs, a group of songs. A record. <laughs> put out a record, that's what I call it, in uh, February of this year that's a, a, a bunch of laments. And knowing T4G, it's sound, and they're talking about the beauty of lamentation. I, it was interesting that I couldn't find any contemporary laments. This thing that's in our Bible, listen, this article starts out, it says as many as... 40% of the Bible's psalms could be characterized as psalms of lament. We have an entire book of our Bible that's called Lamentations. And yet for a bunch of Christians, we're like, get that out of here. We don't want to do that ourselves, and we want to be around anybody else that's doing it. It must be something wrong with you. It says their words pulse with protest, indignation, complaint, and sorrow, even as they contain hope. While the modern worship movement has done much good, it has largely missed the importance of lament. I encourage you to maybe look up Sandra McCracken on that Together for the Gospel website. The saints, not just a contemporary issue, the, the saints have been lamenting for thousands of years. Let me show you a couple little examples. I, I know you want to see proof. I, I hope you want to see proof. I hope you won't take me for my word. Exodus chapter 2. Just to show you two places of lament. One's in Psalm uh, 137, and the other is in Exodus chapter 2. I'd like for you to see these. I think it would be helpful. I think we need some convincing that this is okay. A little bit of context, Exodus. In the Exodus context, the nation of Israel has been in Egypt for um, 400 years by the time the story begins to develop in Exodus. Um, they came to Egypt as really uh, uh, relatives of a hero. Joseph was the guy that saved the day, not only for Egypt, but really for that entire Roman Empire, not Roman Empire, that Egyptian Empire area where they didn't starve to death during famine. Joseph was a stud, and his family, Jacob and the family, moves to Goshen, and probably, probably started out as sort of almost virtual royalty. But over the course of the years that migrated and changed and moved the direction of them actually being slaves. Listen to what happens in 
Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Those many days over the period, over this 400 years. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Over the years, I've said from this pulpit a number of times that the exodus and the exiles are things that we should know well, the exodus especially. The story of the exodus is something that will, will open up your entire Bible, New Testament included. The story of the exodus is really a window into so many things. It helps you understand what God is doing. And here we see God's people in Egypt in slavery. And I've imagined a number of times over the years what it must have been like in year 350 of that 400-year enslavement. There you are in three, year 350. You remember the stories about Abraham. You remember the stories of Isaac and Jacob. You remember the stories of a people that have been delivered over and over and over again. And here you sit in slavery making bricks for the Egyptians. I've imagined over the years what it must have been like in year 350 where you're calling out, where you're groaning, where you're lamenting. God, where did you go? You were right here with Abraham. You were right here with Isaac, right here with Jacob. Where did you go. The darkness, the gloom of has this God forsaken us? When all the while they don't know what God is up to. They don't know that at this point, year 350 of a 400 year enslavement, that at year 350, Moses is 30 years old. Moses is tending sheep in Midian, waiting to see the burning bush, waiting to be called. They don't know that. They don't know what God says later, too, that he's waiting for the wickedness of the Amorites to come in. God's timing is wise, but they're not privy to all that. They're just crying out in lament and darkness and gloom and sadness. The saints have lamented for thousands of years. The saints also lamented in exile The story of the exiles in Babylon and Assyrian exiles, both of those are heartbreaking. When I was a kid, I grew up listening. I turned to Psalm 137. I grew up listening to a Willie Nelson. uh, Actually, I had a couple of Willie Nelson records, like real records. And uh, I don't know what those are made out of, vinyl. Yeah, listening to real records. And uh, we only had a couple of records. We had three. We had a Jack and the Beanstalk record that my younger brother listened to over and over again so much that he learned it verbatim. And we had... Willie Nelson, oh, we had four. Redheaded Stranger. I know every song on the Redheaded Stranger album from, from years ago. And then Gospel Favorites by Willie Nelson. And this song I remember singing as a little boy before I even knew it was Scripture. I, I, if you love Willie Nelson and you love folk singing, I encourage you to listen to this song, but really listen to it as Scripture, as God's Word, as something connecting to the heartbreak of being in Babylon, the heartbreak and the gloom and the lament that pours forth from a people that have been ripped from their home. In Psalm 137, just imagine Willie singing this, by the rivers of Babylon, by the waters, it says in ESV, there we sat down and we wept. For we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
And our response, our heartbreaking response was, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We've got nothing but this sad one. It's all we've got. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundation. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. And this is, man, stark lament. Listen to this. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. I'm not encouraging that kind of lament. But man, can you feel their heartbreak? Can you feel them crying out to God for justice? God, where have you gone? The saints have lamented for thousands of years. Maybe this will help you with the notion of lament. We actually have a particular person in our Bibles that lamented often and lamented well. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not Man, not only the saints have they lamented for thousands of years, but our Savior lamented. He lamented and wept over Jerusalem. He lamented and wept for a man named Lazarus and his heartbroken family. He withdrew to a desolate place when he heard the news of John the Baptist. I can't imagine that he didn't lament. Man, church, the saints lamented. Our Lord lamented. Job lamented. And what Job is doing here, he's trying to make sense of God, where have you gone? Where have you gone? He was here and now he's not. And if he's not going to be a part of this thing, erase me. Erase my day, erase my existence. Paul said something like this. He said, we're the most to be pitied if this thing's not for real. Man, can you make room for lament, people of God? Can you make room for lament in yourself without saying, I must be broken. There must be something wrong with me. And can you make room for lament with others without saying, you got to get it together, buddy. I have two thoughts that I think we can walk away with. Some encouragement in regards to what I think we're seeing here in Job chapter 3. This lament that I would call a faithful lament. What are you to do with this in you? And the second one is what are you to do with this in someone else? What are you first to do with this in you? If you're in darkness, if you're in a season of gloom. First of all, let me just say this. You might use that terminology. I feel broken, but let me encourage you with this notion. You're not a Martian, and you're not broken, and there's nothing new under the sun, and you're not alone. You're not the only person that's ever felt that way, and it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you, although everything in you is saying there must be. 
What happened to the joy of the Lord? I must not be a real Christian. I must not be faithful. Let me encourage you, first of all, with that notion. You're not broken. And let me encourage you with this. Call out to God in the valley. Man, I got no other tips. I got no vitamins to recommend. I like kombucha, but it won't help with that. Trust me. Call out to God in the valley. You're supposed to. Job had a duty to call out to God. That's the crazy thing. This thing we want to explain away. Oh, it's a blip on the radar. He was faithless there in chapter 3. I'm seeing, man, he had a duty and responsibility to speak. He spends the rest of the book going, God, where are you? Where have you gone? I want to see your face. Think about this. What kind of son would he be and what kind of father would he have if he couldn't call out to his father in time of profound loss? Right? What kind of dad are you if you don't listen to that in your children? And what kind of father do we have if we can't call out to him? God, where are you? Erase me if you're gone. Man, I want that kind of father. I think we have that kind of father. The Stoics say, button it. The Stoics say, wash your face. The Stoics say, hey, man, go have a celebration of life for seven, seven sons and three daughters. And move on. But you know what Christians do? They call out to God in the mess. They call out to God in the darkness. Man, there's nothing wrong with a celebration of life. But man, there are times where we need to just sit down and say, God, erase me if you're not here. We don't need to hustle through the gloom and the darkness and the valley. There are times where we need to sit in it and sing a sad song. And say, God, where are you? If you're not in this thing with me, take my day off the calendar if you're not in it. Let me encourage you. If you go through these seasons or if you're in this season now or if you have a season like this that comes up, if you're in the valley, let me encourage you. Don't rush through it. I know it's not comfortable. Don't rush through the darkness and the gloom as here's a beauty Here's a beautiful reality that comes from Job that we see over the course of the book. Decreation is a waypoint in the journey to recreation. Decreation is a waypoint in the journey to recreation. Now, if you see this in someone else, I talked about you for a moment. Let me encourage you. You're not broken. Don't hustle through it. Look for God in it. But if you see this in someone else, let me encourage you with this thought. From Romans chapter 12, verse 15, it's simple. You can remember this. Weep with those who weep. Don't hustle them out of it. Don't rush them out of it. Don't try and fix them. Man, weep with those who weep. Join the hurting, the struggling, the lamenting with encouragement. First, that they're not Martians. That they're not broken. They're not alone. God is still good. He's a good father. And just hang with them and lament Godward. Weep with those who weep.
thought a lot about this sermon. Thought about what I would share. Thought about how untidy it is. And I thought, you know, maybe we're the least attracted to a lost world when we try and communicate that everything fits in a nice, tidy little boxing bag. Let me, let me give you these three steps to a happy life, this faith prescription. When really, as we're living it out, it doesn't work that way. Man, the best thing maybe we can communicate to one another and to a lost world is that God is not a recipe. He's not a chemistry experiment. He's not a math equation that you can plug in certain values and bing, you're going to get your answer every time. He's wise. And he's elusive at times. And he works things that we don't understand. But he's good and we can trust him as we cry Godward and lament faithfully. Let's pray.